Welcome back to the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. I'm Olivia, and this is Aaron, who's left his hungry wife and children alone at home to be here with us today. Yeah, screw my shitty kids. (laughs) I'd much rather do podcasts. (laughs) This podcast is our child, in a sense, I would say. It's our beautiful, beautiful, shining infant. Absolutely. And family values are what we're talking about today on the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. That's right. We're talking about one of my favorite topics of all time. Feast is all. Now brimming wine in lordly cafecito shine before each eager guest. And silence fills the crowded hall, as deep as when the herald's call thrills in the loyal breast. So, for our listeners who may not be, as they say, in the know, what is a wife guy? So for people who aren't as cool as we are, it's a internet culture archetype that sort of emerged spontaneously in like 2017, 2018. And it's a very, very, very specific kind of guy. In a sentence, it's a guy who really, really, really loves his wife. He's a guy who centers his identity around his wife and not just his private, but also his public identity. So it's a guy who's very Mm -hmm. visibly in love with his wife to the point that it's almost sort of embarrassing, isn't it? (laughs) Not embarrassing for him, but perhaps we as the audience. No, it's very important that the wife guy is not self-aware enough to understand. (laughs) It's weird and mortifying. (laughs) Exactly. There's countless examples that I'm not going to name them in case I get, like, sued. But basically, the distinguishing characteristic is really that they are kind of cringe in a kind of wholesome sometimes, but then also just embarrassing way. Because I think the implication in some of the sort of critical use of the word is that it's a guy who's performing affection for his wife. Yeah. But I think that in reality, the truth is often that he's very unaware of how embarrassing he is, the wife guy. Oh yeah, no, I think I'm a bit of a wife guy historical revisionist in that I think that most of the wife guys, putting the sort of the celebrity ones who make a sort of living off of it to one side, the people who just sort of pop up every so often like, I'm going to spray paint your lawn to say, stop emailing my wife. I don't think there is any like performativity in that. I think that man just genuinely loves his wife. Yeah. It's kind of stupid. And you often get these beloved figures on the internet who become known specifically because of how publicly affectionate they are for their wives. Mm -hmm. So on Reddit, you have the Ambien wife guy who takes Ambien and posts about his wife. He posts things like, when sometimes I hid... Wife pill pillow, pillow so she'd use my chest as pillow, so I can hold her, smiley face, smiley face. That's so sweet. His other posts, my wife is soft and I like her. When my, mine, sorry, my wife is asleep. Can he correct himself while writing a piece of text? I'll held her in the hand. Did he forget about backspace? Oh, God. And there's so many. They come up every so often. There's been a bit of a dearth, actually, now I think about it, sort of post-2020. I think the wife guys do for a resurgence. I think the wife guy became unfashionable Mm. on the internet because I think this notion kind of fell out of favor and people did get sick of the idea that someone could exploit their relationship with their partner for clout. For money. Guess what? We're bringing it back. But this time, we're talking about the first wife guys, the medieval wife guys, the ancestors of the modern wife guy. So, apart from the obvious highbrow comedy of taking the term wife guy and applying it 
to someone in the Middle Ages. Why are we doing this? Well, first of all, I think we should be straight with people and explain that that is the reason. <laughs> it's 90 Medieval wife, guys! What could yeah. be funnier? But the reason is because that archetype is a very modern archetype, and it also doesn't really gel with the image that we have in popular culture of the role of women and sort of male-female sexual dynamics in a pre-modern world. And so I thought it would be incredibly interesting to look at some guys who loved their wives in an era where that wasn't necessarily the assumption. Yeah, because people in the Middle Ages had very clear ideas of what a man and a woman, and thus a husband and a wife, are supposed to be. And these are standards of behavior. They're also standards of appearance. So we have really specific and slightly bizarre beauty standards for both men and women. So a woman is supposed to be very slight of stature, so very mm -hmm. small and very narrow. She's supposed to be pale. This is important because whiteness and lightness are related to purity in the medieval mind. So we mm -hmm. have male authors using words like milky, snowy, <laughs> Wait, what? paper, <laughs> describe the skin that a woman oh, oh, is supposed okay, to okay, have. Okay, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> we have this idea that women are also supposed to be hairless, so not just sort of body hair, but women would also pluck their eyebrows and their hairlines. Women were supposed to have these like round faces. The idea was basically a woman is supposed to look like a small, feminine, hairless little egg. <laughs> and a man, on the other hand, is supposed to be well-built. He's not supposed to be, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger massive, yeah. but he should have muscular calves that show that he goes hunting. But he oh, yeah. should also not be too tan to show that he also goes to church. And loves Jesus and reading. And exactly. Such, and such like. he's, he's a renaissance, a real renaissance man. Exactly, yeah. And so you have these beauty standards that are reflections of how people think women and men are supposed to behave. In terms of behavior, a woman is supposed to be secondary to her husband in the relationship, so she should be quiet, she should obviously be chaste, she shouldn't be, you know, sleep around, um, and she should not necessarily speak her mind. And we have books that are like guides to conduct for medieval women, medieval women of all social categories. So we have books that say, for instance, if you're a wife and you're of the lower classes and your husband hits you, you should bear it with grace and you should not complain and then hopefully he'll realize that he's doing a bad thing and he'll stop. We have books... Historically that works out really well. Yeah, absolutely. Just let people... If somebody does something wrong to you, just let them keep doing it <laughs> and they'll figure out eventually that it is wrong. Yep. We have books um, talking about how high-class women should behave, saying that, for instance, if you're the wife of a king or a nobleman and you disagree with something that he says in court or a decision that he makes, you might sort of raise an objection, but only later in private to spare him the embarrassment of having people think that his wife speaks over him and that he has a wife who thinks she knows better than him. God, imagine. <laughs> how unthinkable. <laughs> So, yeah, we have these really clear roles, don't we, of yeah. how a man and a woman are supposed to be. So we yeah. get a sense for what the expectations were like yes. socially for a medieval woman, don't we? Yeah, it's very much... I mean, it's very recognizable stuff, really. It's just like, oh, be pale and hairless and shut up. And, yeah. And it's not. there's not really a model for women to be powerful and have agency. It's not to say that there weren't women who did have sort of power and agency, both in their marriages and in their own right. But they were very much working against the kind of norms of the society at the time. 
Yeah, and this wasn't just an issue that women faced, but it was also an issue that men faced because mm-hmm. a relationship where a woman was seen as having power over her husband was just like a source of ridicule. Yes. It was public humiliation if you were a husband and people thought that your wife had any sort of control over you. And you would be mocked and shamed for it publicly, especially if you were a high-ranking man. So this was horrible for your reputation to be a wife guy, as it were. It's funny you should mention high-status, high-ranking men, because that brings us to uh, the first wife guy of the day, one of the most high-ranking and high-status men of his entire period, who was the Emperor Justinian. Justinian, who was the Roman Emperor, put an asterisk in that, we're coming back to it, from 527 to 565, ruled from Constantinople with the able assistance of his lovely wife Theodora. Theodora. One of the baddest bitches ever to do it. Absolutely. What a historical legacy. I mean, come on. Oh, come on. Right, so let's take a step back and come back to that asterisk when I said Roman. So... In the 6th century, Rome has fallen. The Western Roman Empire has collapsed. It's now a sort of constellation of, I detest the word, but barbarian statelets. Um, statelets. <laughs> well, they're, you know, they're, it's, a, it's a fragmentation of, of the Roman Empire, and, and there are little sort of barbarian kingdoms all across Italy and Spain and Britain and Gaul. In the East, which, by the way, for most of the classical period was the much more interesting and much more economically productive part of the empire anyway, the Roman Empire is still around. It's being run from Constantinople, now Istanbul, and all the institutions of the Roman Empire are still around. The Senate's still kicking around, there's still an emperor, there's still legions, and they very much call themselves Romans. Which is funny, because we don't think of them in that way today often, do we? At least not people who are not historians of the period. No, and Justinian kind of starts that process, I think, in, in many ways. But let's put a pin in Justinian and talk a little bit about his wife, Theodora. So Justinian actually does have quite a humble origin, at least in his sort of immediate family history. By the time he becomes emperor, he's been in the court for ages. He's not like some yokel. But he does share that sort of more humble upbringing with Theodora. So Theodora, we're not 100% sure where she's born. She's born somewhere in the Eastern Roman Empire in the late 5th, early 6th century. We don't know where because that kind of information has not been retained because she wasn't from a noble family. What we do know from the Chronicles is that she ends up at some point living in Constantinople, the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, because her dad ends up working as a bear tamer uh, for the Greens, who are one of the, and I'm going to try and not mangle this, Sports teams? So a sports team in Constantinople in the 6th century was many things. It was the a mafia. sports team. It was <laughs> a political affiliation. It was, yeah, a sort of organized crime syndicate. It was kind of clannish in a way. They were these sort of companies of entertainers of, of all kinds. So like, not just bear tamers and, and acrobats and so on, but also most iconically, maybe, like chariot races. Yeah, so they loved their chariot races. And these would be huge spectacles, wouldn't they? I mean, people would be fighting and brawling and drinking, and it would just be chaos. Well, to get a sense of the scale of the thing, the Hippodrome, where they would sort of perform these these races that was built in Constantinople, at that period could seat around 100,000 people, which would make it one of the largest sports stadiums anywhere in the world today. Yeah. Like, this is 
huge stuff and people got very, very, very invested in it. Yeah, everyone from sort of all walks of life, right? So you have lower class people, but also famously the palace of the emperor himself didn't have like a tunnel underground into the Hippodrome. Yes, which becomes very important later. Um, It's a huge part of life and it's a huge part of every part of life in a way that sports teams today can't really compete with. No, I don't think so. And so Theodora's father is Mm -hmm. a bear tamer. So you have bears for bear baiting and other bear-related sports. (laughs) Bear activities. (laughs) And though Theodora herself, as a young teen, is not directly involved, as we know, in the bear business, Mm -hmm. she is, through her father, very involved in the sports aspect of life in Constantinople. Unfortunately for the young Theodora, when she's in her sort of early teens, we think, her father dies. Rip. And with it, the sort of support that the family got from the Greens. Don't you just miss the days when, you know, you could have a a house and take care of your family and support your kids and send them to school just on a single bear baiter income? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you joke. But to tangent here a little bit, there's not a complete lack of a sort of social safety net. There is a tradition of handing out bread to to the common people and eventually you have to pay for it. But Anyway, the point is that suddenly Theodora and her mom and her sisters end up in this awful situation. The the Greens want nothing to do with them. The Greens are like, well, you know, what are you going to... Show us the bears or yeah, show get us the, out. Show us the bears or get out. And so they are sort of cast off and they end up working for the Blues, the other rival sports team. Oh. Fantastic. It's a derby situation. I know. It's a bad sign. And in this next period is where she kind of becomes infamous. Because she and her mother and her sisters end up working as actresses. Which actress, much actress. like sports team, yeah. can mean a lot of things, can't it? Yes. And in 6th century Constantinople. Well, very specifically in the Roman world, as it still was, actress is basically equivalent to prostitute. You can sort of ask questions about whether or not it literally is like every actress was doing that. But that was the social connotation. And before I say what the allegations about what she did as an actress uh, are. I have to talk about a little bit where we get those ideas from. Because it's not a neutral source, is it? No. Basically, everything that we know about Theodora, we get from one guy called Procopius, who is this Roman historian. He's working in Constantinople around this period. And he writes, actually, quite a few books that are quite sort of positive about Justinian and Theodora and their reign. But he also writes this book called The Secret History. Oh dear. Not to be confused with the Donatart book, unfortunately. It's much, much, much meaner. And this is the one where he basically goes, right, you know everything I already said? Junk that. This is the real story. And he has very clearly in The Secret History, he's got an agenda. He's out to trash Justinian and Theodore. He wants to paint her as a whore and a demon and him as just a straight-up demon, like a literal demon, as in like, oh, if you look at him too long, his face will come off, kind of demon. Oh, yeah. So, Procopius is not a neutral source. That's just an important caveat to everything that I'm about to say. So, what Procopius says is, basically, she's a harlot. You know, she's sleeping with teenage boys. She is this sexual person. And the sort of iconic image of that is that he alleges that she recreated the story of Leda and the Swan, where Zeus turns into a swan and no other way to say it forces himself on a woman. She recreates that with a goose, or possibly a swan, it's hard to tell. On stage. This is like a a performance that she's doing where she is copulating. Copulating with a bird. 
Now, <laughs> I could, look, it could have happened. It seems a bit convenient to me. It's hard to imagine the swan going along with I it. I don't think the swan would be into it. I think there's there, he sort of implies that there was, like, bird seed involved. That's more than I wanted to know! <laughs> but another thing that I think is so interesting about the way that Procopius talks about Theodora, what I sort of felt when I was reading the sources in preparation for this episode, is I kind of like her a lot. She sounds really cool. She sounds like a bad bitch, I would say. Because when women lost their sort of male support, either in the form of their father or their husband, the expectation for them was that they would immediately seek out another man to support them. And so a woman who's not doing that and who has used her own skills, whatever those skills may be, to mm-hmm. survive and to even gain a reputation for herself. Yeah. yeah. It definitely lands different now than it did when yeah. Procopius was writing this, thinking, you know, this will show her. They hate to see a bad bitch winning. I mean, he talks about, like, oh, yeah, she was incredibly funny and charismatic yeah, and exactly. beautiful. And I'm like, she sounds like a cool hang. <laughs> so... Justinian, at this stage, has still not succeeded Justin as emperor, even though he's about uh, 20 years older than Theodora at this stage. Justin himself is basically a sort of slightly senile old guy, slightly doddering. Justinian has his eyes on the throne, and he's casting around for a wife. And he meets Theodora. We're not 100% sure how, although we do have precedent from other Roman emperors of them picking their wives through beauty contests. (laughs) It's all very sort of Miss Universe. But in any case, uh, he meets her somehow, and she uses her sort of natural charms. And by that, I mean, I'm not 100% sure what I mean. She, any, uses, her, she uses her her good looks. Any number of the skills that we've already described. Any of the skills that come along with that. Anyway, he's instantly hooked because he immediately petitions Emperor Justin to change the law that was already on the books that said that, like, Roman noblemen couldn't marry courtesans and become emperors. Which Procopius is absolutely damning, by the way, about Justin for going along with that. He's like, that that moronic old fool. <laughs> he's been out he's been out bamboozled again. They exploit the senile old emperor into allowing them to get married because yeah. they're in love. Yeah. And they and there's a good reason to think that they are in love. I mean, there's no real benefit to Justinian in marrying this woman. And there's a pretty hefty cost because it's looked down upon pretty significantly by the patrician Roman class. A classic <laughs> example of that comes from uh, Procopius. So if, if you mind, if you don't mind, if I do a reading, do you? No, please go ahead. Thus it was that Theodora, though born and brought up as I have related, rose to royal dignity over all obstacles. For no thought of shame came to Justinian in marrying her, though he might have taken his pick of the noblest born, most highly educated, most modest, carefully nurtured, virtuous, and most beautiful virgins of all of the ladies in the whole Roman Empire. A maiden, as they say, with upstanding breasts. Hey, if your breasts are standing straight up, that sounds like you need to get that checked out. It's a real pretty woman situation, isn't it? <laughs> It is a bit. And you can, and it's it's scandalous because in the Middle Ages, it's okay if men are ambitious. Yeah. But a woman who's seen as like a bit uppity and who's all of a sudden ascended from whore to queen, which is, or empress, which is a pretty big, I would say, promotion. Or even just like working to middle class. Exactly. To, um, to empress is a, is a huge step up. And the people who are the nobles, they don't like that. Absolutely not. So two years after they get married, Justin shuffles off, and uh, Justinian comes to the throne. And the interesting thing about 
his reign is the way that they sort of govern. Because Theodora is very involved in the government. To paraphrase Procopius, who talks quite a bit about their sort of style of government, they were famous at the time for sort of publicly disagreeing with one another, and that Justinian would kind of eventually sort of relent and go along with what she wanted. Wow. He was whipped, essentially, as as the kids say today. Procopius, to his credit, actually says, no, nah, that's not true, right? <laughs> They're completely all in it together. What all he's doing is he's going to one, one faction and saying, oh, guys, I'd love to help, but my bitch wife <laughs> <laughs> won't let me. And they sort of, in doing so, it's kind of genius because they straddle the pretty significant political divides of the Roman Empire of that time. So not just the divide between the blues and the greens, which as we talked about, is a divide that goes way deeper than what team do you support, but also the divide between uh, sort of different Christian factions, because you got to remember, this is still only a couple of centuries after the life of Christ. What the sort of orthodoxy is in the sort of Eastern Christian world is still kind of in flux. And Justinian and Theodora both kind of come from different sects, essentially. And so in kind of reigning together and doing this very delicate balancing act, they managed to keep an empire together that would have potentially been quite divided if Justinian had taken one side or another. And Theodora, to her part, is very sort of politically active in other realms. So Justinian, during his reign, passed laws that sort of improved the role of, and the rights of women in, in the Roman Empire. So prohibiting forced prostitution, you know, establishing homes for prostitutes, and uh, giving women more rights in divorce cases, introducing the death penalty for rape, and establishing laws that allowed women to own and inherit property. And this was, I should say, part of a bigger process that was happening during Justinian's reign anyway, where he became a sort of great lawgiver. He consolidated all of the great canon laws of all the eras of the Roman Republic and Empire into the Justinian Code, the first, like, centralized code for a new state. And I think you can see the, the, the role that Theodora had in this. And historians, I should say, generally agree that Theodora was sort of key in sort of promoting those specific reforms regarding to the sort of rights of women. And, you know, you could argue that there were probably parts of that agenda that were quite personal to her, given her sort of experiences in her, in her teens. Um, but I think that the, probably the most sort of visually interesting representation of their relationship was in probably the most famous art to come out of the entire Eastern Roman Empire, which is the mosaics of Justinian and Theodora in Ravenna. Um, if you've never been to see the mosaics there, incredible. It's unbelievably beautiful. I have not actually. I've seen a, a million pictures. That was great. They're on every textbook. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're kind of the only interesting mosaics the Byzantines ever made. But that's a different conversation. And these are made during Justinian and Theodora's life, right? Yes. So the context for why they're in Ravenna is interesting. Because Ravenna is a town in northern Italy. And we've already established Italy's gone by the time Justinian takes over. But Justinian has a... Justinian's main sort of foreign policy push is re-establishing and reasserting control over provinces that were part of the western half of the Roman Empire. He launches a sort of campaign to retake parts of Italy, and he, and he does manage to retake Rome, and he manages to retake a lot of northern Italy, including Ravenna. And that is the sort of reason why we have these phenomenally beautiful depictions of the two of them. The interesting thing about them is that they're, they're these two mosaics, and they're facing each other on opposite walls. 
and they're very much portrayed as equals. So it's one of it's one of Justinian and one of Theodore. Yes, and they are they are staring at each other from the opposite sides of the room. It's very hard to tell from that image who the sort of dominant party is. And Theodora, like Justinian is, as a Roman emperor would be, is surrounded by all these sort of men in togas and generals and great learned men. And Theodora is also <laughs> surrounded by men. I mean, there are, she has her sort of ladies in waiting, but if you were going to look at sort of a, if you look at similar artworks from that era and, and later, women are generally depicted as being surrounded by women. Yeah, and it's a, it's even in sort of like couples portraiture, there's mm. always an artistic decision to place the woman as kind of the secondary figure yes. and to contrast the dominant, powerful pose of the man with the more feminine, sort of demure pose of the woman. But we don't have that here. Yeah, I think that reflects the fact that we're very much partners in life. I think that my favorite pithy representation of that is... So we mentioned the Hippodrome earlier, we mentioned the blues and the grains. Later on in Justinian's reign, it all comes to a head. Because, basically, to, to cut a long story short, Justinian announces that he's going to execute some people who were ringleaders in a riot, who were from both the Blues and the Greens. He comes out to the Hippodrome, to the vast crowd, to announce this, and they immediately just tell him to go fuck himself. And he panics, and he starts sort of preparing to leave. And Theodora, according to the sources, sort of stops him in his tracks and gives a big speech about how, like, look, you can run away if you like, but I'm the goddamn Empress of Rome, and I'm going to stay here, and I'm if I have to die, so be it. And she closes on one of the hardest lines in medieval history, which is, purple makes a fine burial shroud. Slide. Purple, of course, being the imperial color. Absolutely. Which, so, as we mentioned last time, because it can only be gotten from snails, yeah. <laughs> kind of the most exclusive color in the medieval and the classical world. And Justinian, the, the absolute whipped king that he is, is all right, yes, ma'am. And he turns to his general, Belisarius, and has him charge into the Hippodrome and just slaughters everybody. I mean, this is one of the most insane, the Nika riots, yeah. or one of the most insane sort of parts of Constantinople history, because you saw these sports teams that were also kind of social teams or sectors of society. Mm -hmm. Just everything boiled over, and it turned into this massive riot that killed, what, hundreds, thousands of people? Thousands, for sure. Over a few days. It yeah. had to be, like, violently suppressed by yeah. the military. And Theodore is absolutely at the sort of at the fulcrum of it all, she's sort of at the hinge point, allegedly, according to the sources, blah, 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 we have to say that, in kind of turning things around and stopping Justinian from abandoning the city and, and sort of putting his boot down and establishing himself as, as the Roman emperor. That is kind of a turning point, I think most people would say, in his reign, where the sort of disquiet that a lot of Roman society had with him, exemplified by Procopius, had to dissipate or go underground and not really coming out into open revolt in the same way. So yeah, a bad bitch, if ever there was one. God bless her. A real queen. <laughs> and Justinian, look, you may be a, a sort of brutal autocrat <laughs> by our standards. <laughs> but so was she. But so was she, first of all. And it's, first of all, it's okay when she does it. Because <laughs> she's a girl boss. Justinian certainly thought that. Justinian was was well into it. Um, yeah, no, not just, not just a brutal autocrat, but also a dyed-in-the-wool, true blue wife guy. <laughs> true purple, some might say. Indeed. Indeed. <laughs>
So in Justinian and Theodora, we have this sort of like Joker and Harley Quinn <laughs> set up where they're both very sort of influential figures and they have a lot of political power. Yeah. And they yeah, just like the Joker. Just like the Joker and Harley Quinn. You know, they're very visible figures. Who's Batman in that analogy? Definitely Procopius. It's Procopius. But moving away from that sphere, let's talk about a wife guy who had a very intellectual relationship with his wife and mm. whose intellectual and scholarly identity was sort of formed around his wife because that was even less of a common thing, I guess you could mm. say, in the Middle Ages. You know, you had queens who could be influential monarchs in their own right. But what about a woman who has scholarly clout, as it were? I assume those were dime a dozen. Absolutely not. So let's bring up the husband of a very influential one, Peter Abelard, and his wife, Eloise. Let's set the scene a bit and move forward in time to 12th century France. This is before the dawn of the university as we know it. So we don't really have universities. We have schools. Schools are often established by a specific scholar. Or as they call them in France, écoles. Exactly, exactly. I've been on the Duolingo. <laughs> Better than me. Sacre bleu. I knew, you, I knew you had researched the story, but I, I didn't think it had gone this far. Right, so if you're a very influential scholar and you have ideas and theories that make you well-established and well-regarded amongst your peers, you might open your own school, and then all of the little young scholars might flock from all over Europe to learn from you and idolize you and propagate your ideas. This is kind of like having a podcast. Yeah, it was a lot like having a podcast. Many things are like having a podcast, <laughs> but this particularly so. So Peter Abelard is initially a student at one such school, but he very quickly gains fame and also a bit of notoriety as a scholar in his own right. And this starts when he basically, as a youth, publicly stands up and refutes all of his teacher's ideas. He's seen as very clever and very charismatic, but he's also a little bit arrogant. Yeah, I was going to say, he sounds really annoying. He's kind of the textbook Parisian. <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> and that's where we no. find him. And so he has a few ideas that gain him this notoriety. A big one is this debate that's going on in medieval philosophy and theology, which at the time are very closely interlinked, about like the intrinsic nature of things. Trying to use sort of rationalism and logic to answer questions like, how can the Trinity all be one person? And, you know, how can we prove that God exists? And he's also very famous for arguing about sort of the innate intrinsic nature of things. So you have this scholarly discussion about whether certain qualities like whiteness or humanity, don't raise your eyebrows, <laughs> you know, <laughs> a certain color, greenness or blueness are universal qualities or whether they're just traits that can be displayed. And Peter is sort of controversially arguing that actually these things don't exist on a universal level and they're just traits that are displayed by certain things, which is kind of contrary to the establishment, which claims that, you know, just as God created men and women and animals, he also created these divine concepts of, you know, colors and natures of things. Mm. I, I mean, I, I've always thought that uh, Theodora, if she was alive today, would have been a fantastic e-girl. I absolutely think that Peter Adelard, if he was alive today, he would have a YouTube channel. Yeah, he And it would, would be extremely tedious. Yeah, it would. It would, because he is, like, he takes himself very seriously, and he is, like, deeply admired by a lot of the young students, because he's this very rebellious, edgy character as well. He's like a he's kind a cool of... lecturer. He's like a Nietzsche meets James Dean sort of, oh, you know, anti-establishment 
Yeah. <laughs> what an image. <laughs> to these to these kids, at least. And so we know that much about him. What we also know is that sometime around the beginning of the 12th century, a young woman named Eloise moves to Paris. So Eloise is much like Abelard, a scholar, mm. and much like Abelard as well, she's in fact already very well known for her scholarship. So this isn't something that's common in the Middle Ages, and especially no. not at the time. There's no sort of tradition or precedent for women to become learned in this way. We know that Eloise was raised in a convent, so this definitely explains some of her education. But she's still really exceptional for being a woman who's seeking out a further education for herself. And so she's incredibly famous around France already. Oh, before they even meet. Before they even meet. Wow. Eloise is another sort of big player who arrives in Paris. So yet another power couple. Yeah. And we know that she speaks multiple languages, of course, French, but also Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. And she has written essays, she's written poems, and she's written hymns and plays. And so though we don't know very much about her family background, we do know that she is, before she and Abelard meet, already quite influential. Right. And so this sets the stage for a bit of ambiguity in mm -hmm. how it actually is that they meet, because they tell right. conflicting stories, don't they? So how do we know about their romance hundreds of years after the fact? We'll get to their later lives in a bit, but actually Eloise and Abelard both left behind a lot of written correspondence between the two of them and with their friends and associates and peers as well. So we have different examples of them each telling their own story of their romance and their relationship and their lives. Right. And so we get some very interesting conflicts between their two stories, uh -huh. especially around the start of their relationship. Because Abelard says, well, I knew about her and I knew she was the most renowned scholar and the most intellectual woman in all of France at the time. And because of that, I sought her out. And Eloise says, well, I knew that Abelard was the most renowned scholar <laughs> and one of the greatest thinkers of his time. And because of that, I sought him out. And they both tell this story of kind of seducing the other. We don't necessarily know whose is true. If you want a sort of musical version of this, the Taylor Swift song Mastermind is my guiding light to understanding what's going on here. <laughs> my sort of personal opinion is that they're probably both misrepresenting what happened. Absolutely. Although I had, to, if I had to guess, I would probably say that she's probably more honest. She's the one who sort of stands to lose socially from being the one who pursues a man. Yes. Whereas there is very much the sort of archetype in this period of you uh, pursue the beautiful young lady and then you... you you take her and, as we've explored in previous episodes, deflower her in a very literal sense. Exactly. And Abelard paints himself in his autobiography as being a bit of a player already. Which I probably think he was. I can I imagine him sort of rocking up to lecture theatres in a leather jacket. Exactly. <laughs> on a motorbike <laughs> to sort of use the, the modern imagery. Definitely. But he'd never met a woman like Eloise. He'd never met a woman who was also a scholar. Mm. Probably because well, there weren't very many. There were very few. <laughs> what we do know is that Abelard, by some design, ended up gaining employment as Eloise's personal tutor. She was living with her uncle at the time. and A real piece of work. Describes how he convinced her uncle, who he describes as being a very cheap person, that he should let Abelard stay with them and Abelard will pay him a very small 
sort of rent and will also, as compensation, tutor Eloise, who has come to Paris, no doubt, to seek an education from a scholar such as himself. And so it's around, it's while they're living together that they either become involved in this relationship with each other or that this relationship sort of deepens and we know that they fall deeply deeply in love and this is something that they both agree upon so there's this pretense that Abelard is saying okay I'm gonna go shut myself away with Eloise and we're going to engage ourselves in, in some rigorous study. scholarly behavior <laughs> and of course this is one of the only ways that a man and a woman could be alone together at the time if yeah. they're not married so it was very clever so we have some great and some very sort of colorful descriptions of their relationship from both of them. Oh dear. Abelard says, Our speech was more of love than of the books which lay open before us. Our kisses far outnumbered our reasoned words. Our hand sought less the book than each other's bosoms. Oh dear. <laughs> Look at saucy stuff. And Abelard, who describes himself as a bit of a player, says that in the beginning, it was this sort of forbidden, thrilling love. And after the thrill wore off, the love between them only deepened. Oh, that's so, nice. Yeah, it is this kind of beautiful story, but it's also very much a secret. Yeah. They both stand to lose a lot because they're unmarried. And, and Eloise has no intention to get married. Yeah. And both of them agree in their letters that Eloise was very opposed to a marriage, not because she didn't love Abelard, but because, first of all, it was slowly beginning to become taboo for men who were high-ranking members of the church, as Abelard hoped to be, because that was one of the main ways to further one's scholarly career. It was slowly becoming taboo for them to be married. And Eloise also saw marriage as a little bit of a burden, and she saw their lives as, you know, becoming very dull and of marriage as sort of taking the spirit out of their relationship, the spirit being their, their shared scholarly pursuits. And mm. she didn't want them to become bogged down in this sort of domestic lifestyle. And Eloise has a very striking quote about this that she writes to Abelard, where she says, if Emperor Augustus were to make me his wife and offer me the whole world, I would find it far more dear not to be his empress, but your whore. <laughs> God, that's hot. <laughs> yeah, so... If somebody said that to me, I'd melt. <laughs> <laughs> so she's not opposing their relationship, but she does have an opposition to this idea of marriage. Right. However, her uncle, who is very protective and, mm -hmm. as we've said, a bit of a dick, finds out about their relationship and he is furious. And so... You would think he'd be happy to get value for money. <laughs> It seems so economical. <laughs> but strangely enough, he was not a fan. Yeah. I mean, if, if Friedrich James Dean Nietzsche came in and seduced my daughter, I'd have I'd have my reservations. And that was how, you know, Abelard was, was seen, was he was very respected as a scholar by a lot of people. But he wasn't the kind of guy you wanted your niece to get with. No. So eventually, Abelard manages to convince Eloise to get married. And in doing so, kind of becomes the ultimate wife guy in that he sort of manages to manifest himself a wife. Um, <laughs> And they have and this... the coolest wife around. The coolest, the baddest bitch in, in Notre Dame. Of, the baddest bitch in all of gay Paris. Yeah, exactly. And so they have this secret wedding with Eloise and Abelard, Eloise's uncle. And it's supposed to remain more or less a secret because of both of their reputations. But it doesn't stay a secret, thanks to Eloise's fat mouth uncle, <laughs> who... It's dipshit. They think they've appeased him by getting married, but Abelard learns later on that this was a bit of a front 
and that he's not quite let go of his lingering resentment towards him. As tensions between them rise, Eloise's uncle, one night, conspires with one of Abelard's household servants to sneak into his lodgings and basically subdue Abelard and castrate him and run off. And after that, as you can imagine, everything changes. Yeah, sorry, this one's a bummer, unfortunately. Sorry to sneak it up on you. (laughs) And Abelard himself, in his autobiography, doesn't shy away from describing this awful, traumatic event that he suffered because of their relationship and the physical and the sort of spiritual pain. And Mm. he describes the shame and how unbearable it was to even really be perceived by anyone at that point in his life, whether someone who was supporting him or one of his detractors. He describes waking up and the whole town already knows what's happened, essentially. And at that point, their romantic relationship, Eloise and Adelard, basically becomes an impossibility. So Mm. he moves away. He basically hides himself away and he becomes a monk. And that's, in his mind, really the only acceptable thing he can do at that point. But it doesn't end the story. It doesn't. So Eloise, as well, moves to a convent, and she slowly becomes an abbess, the leader of the convent. Abelard remains a monk and continues his scholarly studies. And the two of them spend a lot of time apart at that point, even though they're still married in the technical sense. Their relationship perhaps can't necessarily be called a marriage after that, because they're not really... They can't cohabit, no pun intended. Yeah. (laughs) That was good. Sorry, I'm just just trying to lighten the mood a little bit. Yeah. This um, is heavy stuff. But they do stay very, very close, and they stay in correspondence, and Abelard remains sort of one of Eloise's fiercest supporters, and he tries to do basically everything after that point to make sure that she's taken care of, to try to save her reputation. So, for instance, when her convent is basically bought up and they're about to dissolve it, Abelard gives Eloise more land and makes her the abbess of a new convent and makes sure that she's financially provided for. And he writes letters to her. The two of them together create sort of a compilation of their letters and of their correspondences. And these letters are really, really interesting because there are main sources about Eloise and Abelard's life, but also because they contain these efforts, mostly by Abelard, to kind of exonerate Eloise, because Abelard's reputation has already been ruined. So he sort of takes it upon himself to try to rewrite the story a little bit, and to try to paint himself as being the responsible party in the relationship. One important thing to to mention when we say that the letters have been compiled is that we don't have really strong reasons to believe that these letters have been copied unaltered. And that that what we have now that has sort of survived is not a fictionalized version that he is presenting as a way to get her out of her situation. In fact, as we've talked about, there's pretty strong reasons (laughs) to suggest that he is doctoring the story quite a lot. Abelard, in his letters, expresses this deep guilt for what's happened, not just to him, but also to Eloise, and that her life has been inalterably changed. And at the same time, he is trying to sort of cast himself as the sole guilty party in this relationship and in these events that have happened. And so in doing so, he often frames his guilt in these really extreme terms where he says, you know, I'm sorry for what I did to you. And I'm sorry for the things that happened. And he paints Eloise as being a very sort of passive 
player in their relationship, or perhaps even an unwilling one. And Eloise, on the other hand, in her letters back to him, takes every single possible opportunity to refute this. So there isn't even sort of a sliver of doubt or a sliver of guilt or regret in her words. So he's writing her like, what have I dragged you into? I'm sorry. I'm I so fucked up. I'm so fucked up. I did this to you. You know, I forced you into this. I, I'm a disgusting man. I ruined your life. And here's a quote back from her. She says, I confess, a sinner, but one who, far from weeping for her sins, weeps only for her lover. Far from abhorring her crimes, endeavors only to add to them. She's so cool. <laughs> She's so eloquent and so cool. Uh... And... In reading Abelard's letters, it's easy to think that he's atoning for an act of physical violence or that he is telling a story about something that actually happened. But sort of close readings of them in the context of their situation and of how Eloise has framed their relationship, which the, the spicy quotes go on. I mean, she talks about how she thinks about him at church when she's supposed to be praying and, you know, all of these, like, you know, passionate very almost in some places graphic descriptions of what's transpired between them. And so it is kind of a a funny contrast. And even though it can be hard to set the record straight without having one sort of clear, definite record to work from when they're telling these two different stories, I think that as much as there is clearly guilt and regret from Abelard at his actions, it also does a disservice to Eloise to deny the story that she's telling. Yeah. And to place this story of violence and unwillingness over her own words and how she clearly perceives the relationship. Because even after the point where Abelard is castrated, they stay close and they stay in correspondence for mm-hmm. decades under very little impetus to do so. Mm-hmm. But they're seeking each other out and they're staying, they're remaining close companions emotionally. Yeah. The thing that we have to be very careful to remember when we're evaluating a source like Eloise and Abelard's letters is that they were produced in a time where the public morals about sex and sexuality were very, very different from what we have now. And a great, I think, example of that is the fact that basically the stuff that we find objectionable now in his his later depiction of their relationship, is exactly the stuff that would have been normal and desirable and sort of exonerating for all parties. And as we've talked about at the start, the idea that you would pursue a beautiful woman and you would sort of, on some level, kind of subdue her. Yeah. And that, you know, you, sub- you, could, you would subject her to your will. Everybody would be like, oh, cool, that's normal and great. Yeah, exactly. And thankfully, in the modern era, <laughs> we have evolved a little bit. We can now look at those ideas as objectionable, but it's very anachronistic to to assume that just because it's those ideas are showing up in a text, it means that that's literally what happened. Because it's it's a different moral universe. You know, we, we've sort of talked about the constraints that women are operating under in this period, but he's operating under constraints as well. And he's only becoming sort of more embattled and more constrained by society over the course of his life. And he still takes every opportunity to care for her and provide for her and engage with her, not just as a lover, but as an intellectual partner as well. Mm -hmm. 
And it's really over the centuries after this happened that Eloise and Abelard became cast as these sort of archetypal star-crossed lovers who shared this purely passionate relationship, you know, these kind of Tristan and Isolde or Romeo and Juliet mm. type characters. And that's why in the modern eye, she is often cast as being very innocent or naive. Yeah. A lot of people depict her as a teenager during the events of their relationship. But she wasn't. Which she... She couldn't... She literally couldn't which, have been. Which we know that she almost certainly wasn't because, first of all, she's a very renowned scholar already at the point where this is happening. She's famous independent of him and to be fluent in Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and French and to be a composer of hymns and plays and to be a philosopher when you're 16 is... I mean, I'm sure some people have done it, but not It's certainly many. possible, but it's, it's very, very unlikely. And we also have a source from a contemporary abbot named Peter the Venerable, great name, who was about as old as Abelard. I think he was three or four years younger and writes in one of his own memoirs. I remember when I was a young man and Eloise was famous as well at the same time as a young woman. So a guy whose who's nickname is essentially The Old is saying, oh yeah, we're the same age. <laughs> yeah, so the evidence is much more in favor of her being someone who's already well-established um, and has a very sort of well-developed character. And I think this is also supported by the fact that she has these very complex ideas about marriage and about what's correct and what's mm. okay in marriage. And not only that, but over the later course of their relationship, after they've separated, we see that these ideas influence Abelard a lot as well. So she has ideas about ethics and morals surrounding love and sex and marriage. And we see Abelard adopt a lot of these ideas as well, which is, I don't know if you've ever had someone who starts dating a person with a really specific interest and you see them like immediately adopt that interest. Oh, I've, I've seen it. <laughs> But it's kind of like that, like, you know, Eloise would, he would send his, like, essays to Eloise, and she would write back these kind of, like, detailed critiques of them, and he would be like, oh, yeah. Damn, good point. Definitely. Eloise had all of these ideas about love and marriage and morals surrounding those things, and she has this idea that actually extramarital sex isn't that bad, because it's not about the action itself, but the intention, and she says that mm. because their relationship was one that was built on unwavering commitment to each other and that they were pledged to be each other's life partners, it was actually sort of functionally the same as a marriage, even though they hadn't taken their vows, and therefore they hadn't sinned. And we see later on that Abelard becomes a pioneer of something called intentionalist ethics, which are the ethics, the ethical principle <laughs> that it's the intention, not the deed, <laughs> or oh, the that, outcome that, that matters. That would serve him, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> And so it's a really singular relationship in that sense, because not only is he sort of fully committed to her and to supporting her, but also she's this massive influence on his philosophy. And he writes her these kind of, you know, mopey letters and she writes back with these really hard ass, you know, criticisms. And she's she's sort of challenging him <laughs> and sort of encouraging him to to, you know, do better and to remain active as a scholar. And in one sense, of course, yeah, it's like, okay, you write to your ex-wife that, you know, you miss her. And she says, well, what about Aristotle's theory of empiricism or whatever? <laughs> but, you know, she wanted to preserve that part of their relationship and she wanted him to still be successful and productive as a scholar, despite the permanently changed nature of their relationship. I think it's really beautiful. So, yeah, in being sort of one of the chief wife guys of his period of time... <laughs> 
you know, he, he gave Eloise sort of her life and her voice back. And he allowed her this self-actualization that otherwise would have been really, really difficult. So it's interesting that you mention uh, giving women a voice through writing, because that's also in a very different way something that our final wife guy of the evening did. And he's a very he's a very famous guy you may have heard of by the name of Geoffrey Chaucer. Not a guy well known for his wife in real life, so much as a guy who's known for inventing a wife. Yeah, because we don't know nothing about his wife, really. Yes. She just sort of appears in the historical record briefly, um, and then has some kids. <laughs> yep. But Chaucer's writings about wives and about marriage and about women are some of the most famous, striking literature of its day. It's weird in a very sort of charming way. <laughs> So let's back up a bit yeah. and talk a, a bit about who this Chaucer guy actually was. So he's a writer. He mm -hmm. is a 14th century writer in England. He's sort of particularly significant for being one of the first writers to write in English. Mm -hmm. He kind of invents English literature as a... As a he, he, oh God, elevates the English language I would way. say because it's, it is a language at the point that he's writing, but it's not a literary language. Latin and French are the literary yeah, languages. Yeah, but... Chaucer changed that. He was an extremely influential writer, even in his day. Sometimes mm -hmm. he was controversial as well. But he was, despite being, I think, a pretty simple guy from pretty humble origins, uh, a very colorful character and very well-known and very acclaimed even during his life. Yeah, because he came from quite a normal background. I mean, there's not a huge amount that we can say that's hugely interesting about his sort of family origins. We know that the king during his lifetime, King Edward III of England, granted him, Chaucer, a gallon of wine daily for the rest of his life in recognition of Chaucer's contributions to poetry and to literature. Yeah, because his, his day job was essentially a civil servant. He was, he was a bureaucrat. And by the way, that's the reason why we know so much about his life compared to other sort of people who are writing at the time is because he was writing everything down about, yeah. <laughs> about he, he was very sort of diligent. There was, oh God, there was a the other week, actually, there was a, a, note, a new note was found. It was asking for time off of work. Yeah, asking for, for leave, essentially. And people were dismissed it for hundreds of years. And like, oh, that can't possibly be Geoffrey Chaucer's writing because it's so informal and local. <laughs> and it's like, no, he just like tried to, he was just booking time off. <laughs> <laughs> he was just writing to his manager. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so sort of by merit of being one of the guys that wrote everything down, we have ideas about where he was, you know, then Chaucer moved here, then he went here, then he paid his taxes. But it's really mostly through his literature that we are able to sort of explore his actual sort of inner life and his views. And his views about women in particular. Yes. Which I would say, you know, we need to preface this by saying the man is not a feminist. No. It, it wasn't a category that people were using at the time. Yeah. If you asked Chaucer, are you a feminist? He would have been like, what? Huh? No, he would have been like, um, you know, yeah, I think women are hot. I'm a <laughs> I want to get with women. That's my favorite kind of feminist. <laughs> uh, so he's written many different stories. He has pretty significant corpus, but he's most famous for his work, The Canterbury Tales, which mm -hmm. you may have heard of. This is the story of a group of pilgrims that are all traveling together to Canterbury to visit the shrine of Thomas Beckett, who was 
sadly murdered. Oh no. Really only a few hundred years before that, actually. I imagine that probably that probably made him feel better about the whole situation. <laughs> he gets a shrine. Yep. And it's a it's a group of people of all sorts of different walks of life. You've got the miller and the knight and the priest and the nuns. Mm-hmm. And, and this is deliberate because exactly. he's doing something here. And this will become quite important as we go on. He's these are these characters are archetypes, essentially, of recognizable types of guy. Exactly. In medieval society. Or, in one interesting case, types of gal. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like when I was a child <laughs> in, in America, and I'd go to... Oh my god, that's a twist. I'd go to a restaurant where they had, like, a soda fountain, and I'd get a cup, and I'd put, like, a little bit of each kind of soda <laughs> in the cup to see, like, what would happen and, like, what sort of new combination <laughs> of flavors. And that's how Grimace was invented. <laughs> and he's taking... a horrible chemical... <laughs> It was a horrible chemical accident in a McDonald's in the early 2000s. And Chaucer is kind of taking all of these different archetypes and he's throwing them together in this big mixing pot to see what happens, essentially. And the framing of the story is that all these people are sitting together at a pub on the way having dinner. And they propose amongst themselves a storytelling competition where they'll each share a tale and the person who tells the best one will have dinner bought for them on the way back. Which, by the way, is a literary device that you don't you don't really get so much of it anymore, but, like, all the way back to, like, ancient Greece. Everybody loves to... Everybody loves a framing device. Yeah, um, exactly. Listen, 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 I was told this story by, by my uncle who met a man along the road. Exactly, On the yeah. road to Genoa. Yeah. And so it's an interesting story because each person, each pilgrim who's there, has a bit of a contrast between who they are, their identity, the words that they say as a character, and then the story that they tell. Mm. And Chaucer uses this very cleverly to illuminate and to critique and to explore different ideas and different people in the Middle Ages. And so love and marriage are sort of common themes in a lot of these different stories and in Chaucer's writings in general. And a lot of the women that he writes are kind of archetypal. And many of them, importantly, are told from the perspective of men. Kel surprise. (laughs) So, for example, in one story called The Reeves Tale, we have a description of a young 20-year-old woman. This has been slightly modernized. Um, The whole story is written in verse. Oh, God. And it goes like this. The wench was thick and (laughs) well-grown, with a pug nose and eyes as gray as glass. With buttocks broad and breasts round and high. Oh, right. But right fair was her hair, I will not lie. <laughs> well, at least, he, at least he's got some, <laughs> some nice things to say. Sire Mix-a-Lot. <laughs> <laughs> I like thick hair and I will not lie. <laughs> so, sort of reading, and this is, this is quite a common theme. You know, we have the knight's tale about a knight who falls in love with a woman. And these, these are... These are pretty archetypal. They don't really, I would say, push the envelope. No. Which, in terms of, like, what's expected of a story about romance. Until we get to one particular character. Mm. The Wife of Bath. The Wife of Bath. Another one of the, just the baddest bitches in literary history. What a queen. (laughs) I love her so much. Before we get into the specifics, I just want to say, and I think you're on the same page, we love this one. <laughs> She's so cool. She's iconic, I would say. And again, tragically, we have to stress that this is a fictional character as far as Yes. And sort of much like Procopius writing about how Theodora was like a dancer, prostitute, swan shagger, 
you know, sometimes when you read the story and you think, wow, that sounds so cool. <laughs> you have to step back and think, yeah. oh, maybe we weren't supposed to take it as cool. <laughs> maybe we weren't. Oh, yeah. No, maybe maybe the, the author did not intend for us to, to think, damn. Need me a swan baddie. <laughs> Need to be a beautiful, need a beautiful Mediterranean woman to ruin my life. <laughs> but at the same time, there's sort of evidence that Chaucer was really interested in this character because her story is one of the longest. And the prologue in which we actually hear from the wife of Bath, not just the story that she tells, is I think almost twice as long as the actual story that she tells. And she's one of the characters who has the most... I don't know, airtime in this story. And she's one of the characters who Chaucer sort of explores in the greatest depth. So let's stop beating around the bush. What's this lady's deal? So she is the wife of Bath. And indeed, she is sort of a career wife insofar as <laughs> she's had five husbands. Queen. Queen. <laughs> and she's outlived each of them. Slay. <laughs> And she has a lot of ideas about sex and gender and marriage that kind of contradict what could be said to be the medieval norm. So she's very critical of a lot of the social and the power structures of medieval society. She can be critical even of religion and calls out what she perceives as hypocrisies in religion. So on virginity, she says, for God had commanded maidenhood. Then he had damned marriage along with the act of procreation. So, you know, she's saying, well, people are criticizing me for having five husbands. Gotta make what's... babies somehow. <laughs> but, you know, what's it's it's hard to know what you're supposed to do when society is telling you as a woman that you're supposed to be chaste, but also supposed to procreate. And... Yeah, funny that, isn't it? <laughs> and she's also sort of very unique for being an older woman. Mm. Older women... I think historically, not just in the Middle Ages, often get the short end of the stick, wouldn't you say? I think older women, yeah, older women do not have the easiest time in, in the world, in, yeah. any, in any time of the world. Yeah, because once a, a woman has sort of passed desirability, then she often needs to be cast as either, you know, a matron, like a mother figure, or a hag if she's mm -hmm. not married, and then she's kind of, the, like, dark matron, you know, like yeah. evil matron. Yeah, the Middle Ages did not have the concept of MILFs yet, sadly. <laughs> but if they did, the Wife of Bath would be one. I would absolutely love to go back in time and show uh, Jeffrey Chaucer an episode of MILF Island or MILF Manor <laughs> or whatever it's called. Yeah. Yo, that's my mom over there! <laughs> he would have loved it. <laughs> And she's also sort of very critical of men because she says that society has all these stereotypes of women as being nags and being controlling and of being promiscuous. And she says, however, that if women had written stories about men, then men would never be able to absolve themselves of all of the accusations that would follow because women would have so many sort of damning things to say about men. Yeah, fun funnily enough, she called that one right. <laughs> yeah. That is what happened. Absolutely. <laughs> So it's very sort of prescient in that regard. Yes. And she also emphasizes freedom and autonomy of women. So this is in stark contrast to what we know as what was often considered to be the standard and the desirable sort of wife um, in terms of a, a submissive one. The wife of Baths is actually what's really important for marriage is freedom and autonomy. And that's how Slay. you know that both partners are actually choosing each other for the right reasons. And she says, what makes me such a great wife is that 
A, I'm really good at it. B, <laughs> I've had a lot of practice. B, I'm not that hot, so I won't be unfaithful. <laughs> and C, oh my god, I've got that financial stability that allows me to choose a man who I actually want to marry. And right. So it's very interesting because she portrays her sort of status as a, a wife to multiple husbands as being an advantage. And she portrays being an older woman as being an advantage. Now, that's it's important, I think, to, to say at this point, that's not to say that Geoffrey Chaucer is necessarily endorsing that idea. Yeah, because the wife of Bath is calling out stereotypes of women, but she's also embodying them. And there is a bit of irony in there where obviously we are supposed to laugh at her character and at this portrayal. But at the same time, this is true of every story mm -hmm. in the Canterbury Tales. There's always a layer of irony around all of the stories. He's making fun of everybody. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the, the people such as the priests and the nuns who are extolling the virtues of chastity and of piety are not people who are portrayed as having all the answers. In fact, they're people who are portrayed as very duplicitous and mm. very sort of sneaky and corrupt, which obviously, you know, corrupt church officials was a pretty yeah. big theme in the Middle Ages. So I think that's a really important point to note. It's so it's true that just because he's portraying this type of woman, he doesn't, it's, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's endorsing her lifestyle or her views. But I can't help but feel like there's a degree to which he, at the very least, has a sort of affection for her as a character because he writes about her so goddamn much. He's, she's been described as Chaucer's favorite character and she she kind of feels like real in a sense mm. in that she almost transcends the, the stereotype of sort of an old hag or an old, you know, woman that she is framed as. And yeah, I think it's obviously speculation, but I think you have to wonder a bit whether she's based on someone that Chaucer knew. It's a very vivid character. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> absolutely. But and... of course, it's not just, that's that's one level to the story. We have we have the framing device, right, which goes on forever because he's probably does, I think, sort of sympathize with her on some level. But then there's the story within the story. Yeah. And this is interesting because it sort of further complicates the portrayal of women and of love. And this is a story that's a riff, one could say, on a long-standing medieval trope that's known as the loathly lady. So if you're not familiar with this, it's a concept whereby an old, undesirable hag is transformed into a beautiful woman, usually due to the actions of some sort of young, enterprising, you know, gallant male hero. And so in The Wife of Bath's Tale, we see a variation on this theme in that the male hero is actually a man, a knight who's been convicted of rape. And in order to clear his name, he enlists the help of this old woman who he like meets in a forest after chasing after some naked women who mysteriously vanish. Who hasn't had that happen to them on a, on a Friday night? <laughs> the queen of the kingdom has told the knight that he will be spared the death sentence if he can tell her the thing that all women desire. And so after going out and finding this old lady, she says, well, I'll tell you, but you have to do me a solid in return. And he's like, what? And she's like, can't tell you yet. It's a secret. And so he's like, okay, fine. I don't want to die. So he accepts and he goes back to the court 
and goes before the queen and all of her ladies in waiting, all of the women of the court. And he says, I know the thing that all women desire, sovereignty over their husbands. <laughs> and all of the women among the court confer amongst themselves and they, they all agree that he's correct. <laughs> and What's spare the... him his life. And so he goes back to the hag and says, okay, what did you want of me? And she says, your hand in marriage. And he <laughs> is not pleased about this, but he has to. <laughs> and so he agrees to marry her. And at the end of the story, it's after the marriage. And she says, well, my, my dear husband, you seem a bit distressed. <laughs> and he says, you know, yes. And she sort of extols the virtues of marrying an older woman and she says she mirrors some of the wife of bath's words and says well you know at least you know i'm not going to be getting with any hotter younger men than you <laughs> and she says well what would you prefer you know would you rather stay with me and have a faithful wife or would you rather go off and chase some young some damsel who, who might cuckold you and he says i don't know anymore you know the, the, it's the choice is yours i mean i've had a very confusing day exactly <laughs> And at that point, she transforms into a beautiful young woman and <gasps> tells him, well, now that you've surrendered sovereignty and control unto me, you have your reward, which is that you get to marry a beautiful young woman instead. So the wife of Bath herself ends her tale with a kind of prayer, if you will, though not one in the traditional sense, where she wishes that all women are blessed with husbands who are meek, young, and submissive. <laughs> And equally, that their husbands don't live too long, so that their wives may outlast them and marry again. I told you she was a queen. Oh, yeah, just... What about just it? Just admirable. And, of course, look, it would be too much for us to sit here and say, that's what Geoffrey Chaucer's... Yeah, we always say that, like, <laughs> you shouldn't project modern ideals onto history, and so, in that vein, Chaucer probably didn't want you know, hot older woman to dominate him and then kill him. Which, I mean, look. Even though that seems perfectly natural nowadays. <laughs> These days, every man can have a mommy <laughs> if he so chooses. But I think it does tell us that he, he was probably exaggerating for comic effect. But I think that's the kind of thing that you write if you have a kind of nice marriage, I think. Yeah. And because the... And you the, value marriage and women's perspectives and so on. Exactly. And I think the, how the wife of Bath is treated by the other pilgrims is also a very interesting indication of this. Because she espouses these things that are, you know, anywhere from distasteful to sort of heretical. And she argues and debates with the other pilgrims. And most of her arguments, when she goes through them, more or less make sense. I mean, what she says about you know, how women are, are asked to be both sort of chaste and to bear children. Her character certainly is a bit of a stereotype, and it's not always a positive one. So we're not trying to make light of this sort of casting of women mm -hmm. in literature. But it's still a product of a misogynistic society. Yeah. I don't think it's too controversial for me to say that the, uh, the 14th century was a misogynistic culture. Yeah. <laughs> But it's also, in, in as much as a character like her can be an exaggeration for negative purposes, it's also, I think, true that she's exaggerated a little bit to kind of shame and put down some of the other characters mm -hmm. and to kind of draw attention to how silly some of their stories and ideals are. Because we also hear stories from all of the other pilgrims about, 
you know, young men doing stupid things and sort of, you know, men being made fools of when they are trying not to be emasculated and things like that. And it's this sort of interesting, like, complex moral world that I think shines a bit of light into the nuances and the many dimensions of love and marriage in the Middle Ages and shows us how it wasn't always sort of as straightforward as the man's in control and the woman is submissive. Well, there you go. Whether you're living in uh, 5th century Constantinople or 14th century England, sometimes you can just love your wife. (laughs) And that, I think, goes for all the sort of various characters that we've had fun with today is that they all reveal the tension that exists in in the medieval assumptions about male-female dynamics or the role of women in society. And they show that, yes, when these women did sort of become powerful or independent or autonomous, they were pushing against a, a very powerful fucking fiberglass glass ceiling. But these ideas weren't unchallenged. And I think that one of the lazy assumptions that we can have about medieval life is that the stuff that as you said the stuff that exists on the page about how people were supposed to live was necessarily the way that people did live yeah i mean do you think that women when they were written to and told that they should just let their husband beat them were they were they all going along with that probably not even if that was the social ideal and especially as you go further down the economic classes you see that actually this sort of highly gendered dynamic is only allowed by wealth and by a mm-hmm. certain degree of comfort where women don't need to be able to yes. act autonomously. One of the ways that the wife of Bath sort of establishes her own authority in the story is by saying that the written word and sort of the scholarly world may be the domain of men, but as a woman, she has experience and wisdom and intuition, and that makes her an authority, and it makes her an informed person who's capable of making her own decisions and making her own arguments in her own right. And I think in the same vein, we can't just look at sort of what was written and what was decided by scholars and by philosophers and by sort of the moral authorities of the day as right. And we also need to look at people's experiences and the way that people actually lived their lives in order to know what sort of sorts of ideals people were following. there's something very important that we both need to do we've been holding off on it i don't even know if this is going to make it into the final edit but i need to know that i did it no i'm sorry but like if you think that i'm actually going to get on mic and say (laughs) 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 as they say almost say Okay, thank you so much for listening uh, to yet another episode of the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. It is, as always, an absolute pleasure to make this, and we are so blown away by how positive everybody's been about this thank you very for this. silly show. <laughs> yeah, thank you for the reviews. Thank you for the love. We love Woo. all of you as well. Make sure Personally, individually. Individually. We come to your house at night. Wonderful. And... Okay. um, And drop us a review if you haven't done so already. Please do. It helps. We love positive reviews. Negative reviews. Not so much. I, I, I I could leave it. 
So if you haven't already, uh, please do follow the Weird Medieval Guys Twitter account, and you can follow each of us on our own private uh, Twitter accounts as well. Which are very, we're very charming, funny people. Yes. It will you enrich your life and your social media feed. Um, I'm at Olivia underscore underscore MS. And I am at Aaron, spelled A-R-A-N-P Tappers on Twitter. And with that, I just have one thing left to say. My wife! <laughs>